Welcome to our first Harvard Journal of Hispanic Policy podcast for the 2020-2021 academic year. For the first episode, we interviewed former congressional candidate for California's 50th District, Amar Campanajar. In our conversation with Amar, we talked about his journey in running for public office, his experience growing up as a Latino and Arab American, his views on healthcare reform, and many more of his life and professional experiences. Over the next few months, journal staff will interview Latinx elected officials, candidates, students, activists, and leaders to learn about their journey, their perspectives on culture, and policy. Well, Mar, thank you so much for joining us today. Of course. Thanks for having me, man. The goal is to just have a very casual conversation with you. I think you come with a, a great background in public office, public service, and running for, for office as well. Uh, so we just love to chat with you about all those, all those experiences and see if you have any sort of wisdom and, and any stories from those experiences. Um, and then for reference, I think a lot of our audience who will listen to this and who reads the journal, we have a lot of students, both undergraduate and graduate students who are interested in public policy, Hispanic policy. And so, you know, as you tailor your advice, stories, what have you, um, just, I guess, keeping that in mind as well. Sound good? No, it's an exciting time to be in college. I, I miss it myself. And, uh, you know, what a time to be alive and be a young, curious person right now in this country. So um, thank you for having me. I'm really honored to be with you guys and appreciate the Harvard Journal of Hispanic Policy putting this together because um, hopefully we'll have a great conversation and people will walk away with more answers than questions. Hope so. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so. I guess we can just do a quick intro for everyone who's in the room for the audience listening. So my name is Carlos Martinez. I am one of the editors for the journal. I'm currently a second year master public health student at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health where I study healthcare management. Um, I came to the journal because of my interest in uh, Latinx health, healthcare disparities, and I hope to um, join the healthcare workforce in a way that allows me to sort of chip away at those disparities and leave the system, leave the system a little bit uh, more equitable for everyone involved. Great, and my name is Angel. I'm a first year MPP student and will be a joint degree student at MIT Sloan as well. I'm passionate about climate action and climate change, especially as it relates to Latinx communities and Latinx communities, including the one that I grew up in, have been deeply affected by pollution. So I'm very interested in expanding clean energy resources into low-income Latinx communities, and that's what I hope to do in the future as well. Wonderful. Well, I'm Amar Kampanajar. I'm the guest today. Thank you guys for having me. Uh, I'm a Latino Arab American. I was the first Latino Arab American to run for Congress in the Trump era of all times. And uh, I felt an extreme calling. I felt it was a where were you moment for all of our communities. And I learned a lot from that experience. We fell just short in a very Republican district, uh, but I continue to serve my community to this day. And um, I'm really happy to be with all of you, and uh, thank you for taking the time to hear some of my thoughts. Thank you, Amar. And for full disclosure, uh, I am also a resident of the district where, Amar, you ran for office. So fun story, when my, uh, my family and I moved to the U.S. in around 2003, so I was about uh, third, third, fourth grade, and we moved to El Cajon, California, which is a city that's in this district that Amar was running for office in. And so... That's sort of by way of how I was introduced to Amar and to his office. Um, the district that we live in is very diverse, as I'm sure you'll get into, Amar. Um, it's traditionally been a Republican district. And um, Amar sort of caught the eyes of myself and a few of my acquaintances and friends uh, for running a more Democratic agenda in a very Republican district. Um, so that's a little bit of background there. 
Very cool. Very cool, Carlos. And very proud of you, man. Going from El Cajon to, to Harvard, you're one of those inspiring figures that, um, that I think our young generation needs to see out there in East County. So good on you. And thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Of course. Uh, so we'll start off with a, with a pretty broad question here. Just kick things off. Um, if you wouldn't mind telling us and our listeners sort of the experiences and moments that attributed to your interest in running for public office, were there any sort of aha moments yeah. in your life? Um, what were those big moments like and what sort of what was going through your head? Yeah, that's a big question, Carlos. Um, and, and probably for like the two of you, there's many different reasons that we're compelled to get into service or, 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 you know, give back to our community. Like you said, leave the world more equitable than you found it. You said it very nicely there at the top. Um, I would say that there was a person, there was a place, and then there were moments that all kind of came together that inspired me to answer the call of public service. Um, I think my life, you know, as improbable as the journey of my family, like many of ours, you said your family came here in 2003. Um, you know, my father immigrated from the Middle East to the United States in search of, as cliche as it sounds, the American dream, a good education. He graduated, went to school, uh, San Diego State University. He um, started a business, started a family, and wanted to give back to, to his community. Um, what makes my father's story so, I think, powerful and so quintessentially American is that for him, a formative experience in his life, he was 11 years old and his parents were assassinated in front of him in Lebanon. And rather than just sulk and be in despair and self-loathing and anger um, or becoming radicalized from that experience, he devoted his life to giving back to other people. And so he became a public figure back in the Middle East. Um, and so I think that probably had a little bit to do with it, that there was somebody who went down that path growing up um, I was so compelled by his ability to turn his pain into purpose. Um, and I think that's what we do. People who are called to public service, we've seen inequities or we've seen pain, we've seen suffering, uh, unfair treatment of people. Um, and we want to help contribute to, you know, uh, undoing that and, and righting the wrongs that's in society. So I think that was something that kind of resonated with me. I lived in Gaza for four years. And so let me tell you, I don't take the freedoms we have, the voice we have, the, the ability to move up in society, to achieve our dreams. I don't take that for granted because I've lived in a place where literally uh, an entire city's electricity, water, medicine can be shut off indefinitely with no warning and no notice of when it will turn on again um, by, by another country. Um, so I think that experience being Palestinian, living in the Palestinian territories, my father's story, all that made me not take for granted the bounty of this country. Um, so I think those that was the, the experience, the place that really made me think, wow, America is this place of enormous opportunity. We have yet to reach our full potential. We don't distribute those opportunities equitably. But you know, in this country, you have a voice, you can work hard, you have communities that have your back, and you can ascend, right? There's places where no matter how much hard work you put into it, how much hope and determination, how smart you are, that nothing you do can take you out of your circumstances. Um, and that's why so many people come to this country and risk it all. So I think that was one of them. I think the other one is, um, you know, I left Gaza, I came back, um, and I was really inspired by President Obama. 
you know, here was a skinny brown guy with a funny name, right? Whose dad wasn't around uh, as much, um, you know, multi-ethnic, lived abroad, went to a Muslim school, very similar things to me. And this country looked at him and said, this is somebody that we believe could represent our country. And I didn't believe we were going to be in a post-racial America, but I, I felt like that was a great story of the alchemy of America. Again, how you could turn your pain into purpose, how you could work hard and really ascend and, and aspire to the American ideal that we've never reached. And that he really inspired me. Um, he not only did Obama give me like the roadmap to navigate my journey as a man of multi ethnicities and, and cultures, um, having done it himself, reading his books and all that, he gave me a destination. I got to work at the White House. 12 years after living in Gaza, where I was being bombed, our whole community was being bombed by American-made Apache helicopters and F-16s and, and rockets. 12 years later, I'm in the White House, being protected as a man by the same things that could have killed me as a boy. And that kind of, that only happens in America. America is not a perfect place. We aspire to become a more perfect union. But that really made me think that anything is possible in this country. And I want more people to feel that way. And I felt running for office could do that. Um, and, you know, I think what's really, really inspiring to me is through the instrument of our own government, through our own voice, you can change the prospects of a generation. You can change policies. You can make things better. Um, and Obama's call to action, this was the triggering point. He's in his farewell address. He said, if you don't like the way the country looks, you know, stop arguing people on, on social media, which a lot of us do. I'm guilty of it sometimes too. get out there, you know, roll up your sleeves, put on your sneakers, get a clipboard, organize, run for office yourself, talk to people that you don't know and try to change their mind or maybe they'll change yours, but get out there and embrace, you know, the agency you have of being a citizen of this country. And I said, I took that quite literally and I ran for office right after that. So I think those are the things that really shaped me. And we can go on and on about the things that drive us to run for office, but those are the most pivotal ones. That's amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. And I would love maybe, well, two things that stood out with what you said just now. I think that you being inspired by President Obama's messages is really resilient and um, something that stands out, sort of a similarity, is that you know you and him, and there's a lot of people who experience inequities in the U.S. You know, you also experience those abroad, and a lot of people can become jaded and sort of almost turned away from the idea of running for public office. And yet, there's this whole sort of almost class of people who are on pu public office who are not jaded by those experiences, but pushed and and that drives their 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 um, idea to become a, a someone in public office. Um, and I think that's, that, that stands out. I know that during your time working in the White House, you were able to uh, sort of select the letters that President Obama would get to read. Do you want to share a little, really quickly about maybe anything that stands out about those times? Yeah, like my, the job I did wasn't super glamorous. I, I started working at the White House doing that and I moved on and worked at the U.S. Department of Labor afterwards. Um, when I first got there, I... Um, worked with a team that, that got the 10 letters a day that President Obama would read every, every evening. And he actually read 10 letters a day. And I always joke about, you know, there was a time when we used to have a president who would read, this is when Trump was president, right? And um, 
he he's a community organizer by trade, right? That was his thing. Another parallel that I find with myself, I started off as a community organizer for his campaign before I got into running for office myself and getting in government. But what I loved was he really wanted to get out of the bubble. And he, he would read these letters. And, and if you remember, it's been a while now since he's been president, but he would take his the letters and give speeches and, and browbeat all the elected officials to go further on health care, to go further on climate, to go further on all of these things and try to get the court of public opinion behind it. And when he felt jaded and cynical uh, about Washington, um, he would read these letters to get a feel of what real America was going through. Uh, some people thanking him because of the ACA, the Affordable Care Act now, their kid can stay on their health care until they're 26, or they don't have to worry about getting the illness away from being bankrupt and selling their home or whatever the, the case was. And there were some people who talked about the undeniable, unfinished work we still have in this country, that they feel like they were falling through the cracks, whether it was dreamers uh, or other folks who were talking about how they're worried that the only country they know and the only language they speak, English, and, and the only place they've known will be ripped away from them because of their status that they didn't know about until they got the driver's license or tried to, right? And I think those are the stories that I remember hearing and reading and thinking for this president to be effective he, and to continue to be the, the hope we change you president that he wanted to be, he needs to hear from these people and, uh, you know, draw inspiration from it. And he did. He would read them every night and he would take them, you know, to the bullet pulpit. He'd go around the country trying to advocate for things he believed in because Washington had been so gridlocked. And so I think it really um, shaped his presidency in a way that you wouldn't think letters uh, do. And a lot of people who write a letter to the president, it's like, it's like praying if you don't believe in God, right? Like you're just doing it because you've tried everything else and you're like, what are the odds that the president, the most powerful man in history is gonna read my letter? You have to be either really down on your luck or really grateful, right? And so you would get those kind of extremes of people being super, super um, desperate. And like I heard a story from a veteran who said he had to sell his medals to buy his medicine that month. So stories like this that I think um, kept the president up at night and kept him going throughout his presidency when things got tough. I love that job. And um, it, it showed me how powerful, like, connecting with constituents is and it kind of informed the way I write for office myself in the future. Yeah, definitely. Wow, what a what a unique and I can't imagine a more formative experience um, to sort of shape your your future in public office. So going back to your talking about your time in office and bringing in the the lens of identity, right? So I think one of the uh, and I, something that has existed in the in, in the Lenox community for many years and generations is a sort of duality, right? So as immigrants, we oftentimes don't feel like we may associate with our life in the U.S. and our life in in, in, in our home country. Neither aquí, neither ya, they say, right? Neither from here nor there. And I want to dig into this in your experience and, and as both a, your identity as, as Mexican and as Arab and tying that into your, into your campaign. Um, so did this, for you, not even a duality, sort of these, these multiple identities, how did these affect your ability to connect with voters in a district that is predominantly Mexican and Arab? And for context for everyone else who's listening, 
uh, the district where you ran for office is about 35% Latino. And then there's a big population of also Middle Eastern folks, uh, especially uh, a large Chaldean population, if I'm correct, right? So outside of Michigan, I think we have the second largest yeah. Iraqi Chaldean population. And so I'm thinking, so in my head, can you just bring all those ideas together? So your identity and then reconciling that to then sort of connect with your voters in a very diverse district. Yeah. You know, I always wondered, like, I would kind of angrily wonder, like, why, why did God or whatever make me Latino, Arab American, put me in Gaza and then put me in a single working class mom's home? Like all these adversities, I'm like, what the heck? Just give me one of these things to figure out. And I realized that they became strengths, you know, like if I was not, you know, I live, my district is a big veteran population, right? So the fact that I've seen war and they've seen war, there's a broken place that we have a bond. And I can talk to them about my PTSD from seeing war. Very different than theirs, of course, but there are some similarities that allow us to create a bond that you really cannot forge or, or kind of uh, fabricate. It's something that you have to live. And so that became a strength in that district. And then being the son of a single working class mom, you know, this district it has doubled the unemployment rate of the rest of San Diego. It's a working class, blue collar district. So that experience, being the son of a working class mom, having to work as a janitor at my, my church at the age of 15 to help make ends meet, all of those things gave me a very real, raw connection to my working class community that you can't, again, fabricate. You can't learn in a book. You have to live it. And then the biggest struggle of my life was not being Latino enough. You know, Amar Camp in the jar doesn't jump out as Latino off the paper. And I had a very loving Latino family in San Diego. My family here in America, they love me and I love them. But there's a, pl a point when they just cannot understand what it's like to be an Arab American in a post 9-11 world, right? After 9-11, it was a very tough time to be Arab American. And so I wasn't, I was seen as kind of like, there was something that there was missing. You know, there was a missing understanding. As much as they loved me, they just couldn't relate, right? They protected me, they defended me, they couldn't fully relate to it. And then when I lived in Gaza, that was a little bit more challenging because I remember living there and people would look at me and be like, oh, you're American, you're not Palestinian. I'm like, as if the war knows the difference, like as if these missiles know the difference, we're all going through the same exact thing. Uh, and they would look at me and say like, it's the Americans who are funding this war, as if I'm the perpetrator. And so I didn't have the street creds of an Arab or Palestinian, even though I was living the same experiences. And I always wondered, was I enough? Was I enough Latino? Was I enough this? Was I American enough? You know, post 9-11 world. And, you know, as a Christian, you believe in the Trinity and somehow God is fully man and fully human and three in one. So like all those things of being, being everything all at the same time, that idea resonated with me because I'm fully American, fully Arab and fully Latino. And it, later on in life, I realized it was a strength. Like you said, the district's 35% Latino, it's 15% Middle Eastern, it's half me, literally. And 50% plus one is what you need to win an election. So like all of those things I thought were adversities were strengths. And um, it's why we were able to make history. You know, this district, we used to lose this district by 30 points. We bought this race within three percentage points. Um, and that's because we were able to inspire young people, people of color, women, 
lifelong Democrats, and even Trump supporters who were disaffected with the party and wanted somebody who'd be disruptive to the status quo. And, and as you know, Chaldeans, Iraqi Christians, they're pretty conservative on a whole, right? And so when you can't bridge that political divide, I'm a Democrat, they're mainly Republican, they're pro-life, they're anti, you know, they want small government, small, less taxes. It's hard to communicate with them with my agenda but because we have a common language, literally Arabic, and common experiences and cuisines and cultural affinities, I was able to get a lot of support from folks who would never vote for somebody with a D next to their name. Same thing with the Latino community. You know, uh, the, my party, the Democratic Party, and you've probably seen this, it's coming to a reckoning, realizing that the Hispanic community as a whole is a lot more conservative and not just like, you know, in Florida. Cubans and Colombians and Venezuelans, but even Mexicans in, 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 in California. And, um, you know, uh, people are realizing that, you know, for example, Biden did, didn't do as well with Latinos as Hillary Clinton did, right? And slowly, Latinos are, in, are moving closer to just voting Republican. So, I was a Democrat, but I was Latino and I have a Latino family and my abuelita could vouch for me, you know what I mean? And like, there's that cultural connection. And so I think instead of wondering, was I enough of everything, of anything, it allowed me to be authentically all things to all people. I didn't have to pretend to be somebody I wasn't. I was just fully American, fully Latino, fully Arab, all at the same time. And it allowed me to pull the different threads of that community which you know very well, Al Cajon is where the Chaldean community is populated in, and there's a big Latino contingency there too. I was able to pull together different groups and create a coalition because of my background. That, that has had been a challenge for me most of my life, but it became, um, it, once I was able to reconcile it in myself, which I think a lot of us have that problem, right? Like you're not from here or there, like you said, um, once you're able to reconcile it in yourself, you realize how much of a power it is to have those experiences. Definitely, definitely. There seems to be a theme here, Mar, where you have the experiences uh, which are sort of very uh, formative and, and challenging, but you sort of turn them into strengths and see how they can sort of push you forward here and the example, you know, building your coalition. So thank you for sharing that. And I think now maybe we can sort of move forward in time, if you will. So rather than thinking about your campaign, let's think about where we are now. So we're a year into this pandemic and now we can bring in the policy lens, of course, and I would be doing the service to the School of Public Health if I didn't talk about healthcare coverage. Um, in the past, I was reading some of the material you put out, you called Medicare for All um, impractical and you touted a policy more towards a, a policy option that would expand Medicare for people who are 50 to 64 years, years old as a buy-in option. Now, I would argue that one of the one of the adverse sort of effects and consequences of the pandemic has shown us what can happen when you tie healthcare coverage to employment. Yeah. Um, early in the pandemic, when people were losing their jobs, they would also lose coverage of their healthcare, which can be can carry huge adverse effects in a pandemic when you might need to access these resources. So I got to ask you now, has your stance shifted at all regarding a more universal health coverage since the pandemic? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think it's a good question. And you kind of asked, there's two sides of your question. One is, you know, the idea of Medicare for all single-payer health care and, and the practicality of that, right? Whether, 
you know, you could do, you can overhaul a system, you know, that's one fifth of our economy. And the other question of, um, is it practical to couple healthcare with employment? And I think the answer to that second question is absolutely not. And I don't know if it therefore means the only option is single payer healthcare. Um, but I think the pandemic has really highlighted the fault lines of coupling healthcare and employment. But the other fault line, and you know, being from California, you probably remember this AB5, which is you know, um, trying to fix the misclassification of workers with the whole gig economy and Uber and all that stuff. And, and we're realizing that we, our generation, we're not going to typically probably have a job that's like a one career, like, right? We're going to have multiple careers. We might have a career portfolio, not just one job. And, and so we might not work full time for one employee. I think the future of work is going to look that way. So attaching your healthcare to an employer is going to be very impractical. Um, and I think even more impractical than my, uh, you know, um, hesitations with the idea of single payer healthcare. So we're going to have to figure this out. Uh, fortunately, we've seen other countries that have hybrid systems, right, where you have a robust public option and you have a private option, private healthcare that works for those who want it. Um, I think that if we could start from scratch, without anybody falling through the cracks, Medicare for all, I think if we had started that way, probably would have worked. But because we are where we are right now, and so many people rely on the healthcare they have, and invariably a, a massive overhaul of our, of our healthcare system would cause people to fall through the cracks at a time when we don't want that to happen. Um, I do think that having what I talked about, which was you know, good old fashioned competition, and, and getting rid of the monopoly that private insurance companies have on our healthcare. I think that's the common theme that all of us think is the problem, the monopoly that private insurance companies have, the profit motive behind care. Um, I always tell people, if you want to fix this country, you know, get money out of our prisons, get it out of our healthcare system, get it out of you know, um, the media, get it out of a lot of things, and, or the military, and you'll see this country work like it's never worked before. Um, I don't know if the idea of Medicare for all is the only way to get there, but what I would do is democratize the option, the choice. Um, I would create a public auction Medicare type plan. I would create, I would maintain the private plan, the plans that we have now, create like a nonprofit Kaiser type plan, and then let consumers vote with their dollars. And if the public option is, is as good as our you know, pro-government Democrats think, it's only 2% overhead compared to 20% overhead of healthcare, private healthcare. If we could provide better quality at lower cost, private insurance companies will just cease to exist. They won't be able to maintain their, their, their profit model. And we will end up with a Medicare for all type healthcare system. So instead of just kind of uh, bluntly doing it overnight, what I would do is give people the option and let people's experience determine the outcome. And so, and by the way, even the most robust, bold healthcare agenda of Bernie Sanders kind of does that, right? It's, it's, a, it's a four year installment process. The first year is 15 and older and then 45, 35. So even, even Bernie Sanders recognizes that doing this overnight would be disruptive. And I, I also think that the healthcare that, you know, the military has, TRICARE should stay the way it is. 
if it's not broken, don't fix it, right? Like the, the Native Americans have their own healthcare system. They don't want to be folded into anything else. So I think, you know, it's a trickier thing. One fifth of the economy, a massive system um, to try to kind of put everybody in the same cubby, especially since our healthcare needs are so different. But this notion of healthcare being a right and not a privilege for a few is, I think, fundamental to, to just being able to live with dignity. And if you think about it, like healthcare, all of us, most of us will come into this world to the healthcare system, a hospital, and most of us will leave through the healthcare system, a hospital. And how much time you have between those two moments in your whole life, ironically, depends on the kind of healthcare you have during your life. So I don't think that healthcare should be one of the things that we're thrifty about. There are other things in our federal budget that we should maybe not spend so much, like our military. I don't think we ha we should be shortchanging people when it comes it comes to the kind of healthcare that they have. And the pandemic definitely has put that into focus for me. I mean, I lost a family to the pandemic, and um, it's it's just shown the fault lines in our not just our healthcare system, but our public health system, and frankly, the last administration's ability to maintain what it, what its predecessor left in place a playbook a preparedness. Uh, playbook um, for rapid response. He took out CDC experts who were in China that were there for a reason after Ebola. So there were so many mistakes that were made. And I don't think the only lesson is um, Medicare for all. It also has to do with leadership and how this last administration just completely dropped the ball in every single way, except for, and maybe we have to give him credit here, is out of ego trying to expedite the creation of vaccines, right? Um, and I think we have it now uh, in part because of the obsessive work that the previous administration tried to do for, for the sake of winning an election. Um, but I think it's, as California is about to start giving vaccines to everybody starting April 15th, I think we could all be grateful about, for the incredible work that people put into making this vaccine happen in record time. Certainly, certainly. And I think that I, you had a lot of really good points there, and we could spend the next two hours talking about those. But I think the, the most salient point. We'll talk about this thing. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I think the most salient point there is how we get there may be different, but knowing that at least the new class of, of people running for office agree that healthcare should be a right for yeah. everyone. Um, as long as we all agree on that, right. I think we'll get to a better place. And that's so important because Democrats, we fight about things that we agree on. Like all of us want to expand healthcare for everybody. And we're eating our own. We're cannibalizing each other because we don't agree how to get, like, how to get, like, all of our GPSs are going to the same place. We just are taking different routes. And not to get partisan, but Republicans don't have that vision for expanding healthcare. So we should be focusing on them, creating that contrast, and highlighting to the American people that there is one party that wants to make sure that you have healthcare. Certainly. And so now I think we can focus, uh, sort of merge the, some of the themes in the journal um, with the lessons in COVID, um, and I'll pass it on to Angel. Great. So Amar, one of the themes of this year's journal is the idea of resiliency. Can you talk to us a little bit about where you have seen or experienced resilience within your Latinx community? Absolutely. I think that God has ne never made a more resilient person than a Latina mom, frankly. I mean, raising people like the three of us is work in itself, probably. <laughs> um, but my mom raised me on her own. My dad was abroad. 
and she raised me on her own for most of it. Our family struggled financially, not uh, abject poverty like many do, but we were, you know, we struggled paycheck to paycheck, month to month. And my mom somehow made it all work. She was dad, she was mom, she was able to pick me up, take me to church, take me to band, take me to school without flinching, still keep her job and made it look pretty effortless. Um, and that I think is a testament to her resiliency. And, you know, a lot of these Latina moms are doing those things and they're also our frontline workers, which is a whole, you know, life consuming thing on its own. And they do it without complaining. They do it uh, being overworked, frankly, underpaid. If you see the pay gap between uh, it's Women's History Month, between women and men, but Latina, Latinx uh, women is, is you know, um, it's embarrassing, frankly, that that's how it is in this country still. And, and you know, the death rate among the, our community has been higher in California than any other group in the, in, in the state. And it's because we're on the front lines. Um, and because we live in, in densely populated housing, right? There's so many different policy problems that cause this. But um, the reality is if you are Latinx in this country, you have an increased likelihood of getting COVID and dying of COVID. Um, and many of the, that reality, again, getting back to the white public service, there are concrete policy proposals that we can put into place that could change that and make things more equitable for folks in the Latinx community. But until then, you know, we have to be the hardest workers in the room. That's not all of our parents always told us work harder, 10 times harder than, you know, the guy down the street or whatever. Um, because we have to work harder to get, you know, the same amount. That is just true. Um, and so I've seen that in the Latino community, Latinx community for many years in my, my mom and mothers across the state and my experience in the county of San Diego. Um, in my family, my abuelita is still kicking. She's 92 years old, and you know she's she's a cancer survivor of many different kinds, and provided for our family. That's the Latin Latinx community, and then the Latinx community. We're creating jobs at four times. We're creating small businesses at four times the national average, even in this pandemic, because we can't just rest on our laurels. We don't have the benefit of you know uh, generational wealth. We have to find a way to keep going. And so if we can't get a job, we create our own, right? So um, I think that is something that's unique about the Latinx community. And um, I think it's really important for us to realize that, you know, times are tough now, especially with the pandemic, but um, it's it, life is a lot easier for us than it was for our parents, right? And, you know, I think it's, it's important to like, you know, stand up, take a stand to fight for things that we believe in, to push for equity. But to say that things have not improved would be to, um, it'd be undermining the social justice fights and civil, civil rights fights that our families and those before us have fought for. To say that these inequities are immutable um, kind of robs us of our own agency. And so I think it's really important to, to be resilient. I think it's more important to be motivated than to be mad. I always tell people, don't be mad, be motivated, don't complain, campaign. Very Obama-esque, like just pick up a clipboard and go do something about it. Because then if you don't do anything about it, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. And I think, you know, the Latino, Latinx community, we are resilient people. 
And um, we understand that nothing in life is given and everything has to be earned. Um, and we don't have a, the people I know, the community that I was raised in, I'm, I'm just so um, impressed with how many people I've heard from who have all the reason in the world to be angry, to be, you know, cynical, but instead they're resilient, right? They overcome a lot of hardship and they do it with grace and poise um, and dignity. Absolutely. The other theme of this year's journal is reconciliation. And last year, uh, you spoke about a face-to-face meeting you had with Ehud Barak, the former Israeli prime minister, and you spoke openly about how he was involved in a raid that took uh, your grandparents' life, as you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast as well. Can you talk to us about this experience and how a conversation that could have been tense ended up being one of reconciliation and peace? Yeah, you know, uh, I... I'm still kind of decompressing that experience almost a year, maybe two years later. And, you know, the reason I met with him was mainly for a personal, out of personal curiosity. It's like, it's like looking like being next to the Grand Canyon and not looking down. Like it just draws you in. Like I was given the opportunity to meet this person who literally had he killed my grandparents 11 years earlier, I wouldn't be here because my dad was 11 at the time. So there's something very drawing about this, right? And I didn't have any expectations. I wasn't going to go and say, we're going to have an hour long conversation and we're going to wipe away decades of um, pain and suffering that the Palestinians have experienced, my family's experienced, I've experienced. Uh, But I'm a big believer in, in truth and reconciliation. I'm a big believer in nobody's irredeemable. Um, And I am not saying that he redeemed himself by any chance. I'm not saying that I forgive him for his actions. Um, I think there was a willingness when we talked to talk about our, our lives, our experiences, and to tell our truths. I talked about my perspective of you know, did you have to kill my grandmother? She was just a homemaker. You have to leave my father orphaned. Um, he talked about his experience. And he said, if I was your, if I, I would, I would have been your grandfather if I was Palestinian, basically. And that kind of was an eye-opening experience. And um, I found that to be kind of interesting. I didn't walk away feeling that we reconciled. I didn't walk away feeling that there was this aha moment, this kumbaya moment, but it was, I think, the beginning of a conversation that needed to be had. My father had wanted to talk to him many years ago, but wasn't able to do it because he was too close to it. Um, I, I think, you know, they talk about like the, there's three, the three or four, uh, stages of repentance or redemption and i don't know if you've heard about this but the first one is kind of recognizing the situation having remorse about it um regret um and then um you know there's repairing it trying to fix and make amends which is usually very hard to do and then um you know reform changing as a person i don't think he made those moves but the willingness to sit down and talk um, 
to, to agree to forge a future that is peaceful and that recognizes the shared humanity of myself and the people I represent, that is a move in the right direction. Um, and I learned a lot from that experience because you don't get, when you meet with somebody like that, I think it's very important for our community because there's a power dynamic, right? He's the person in power. I'm just a candidate running for office. I'm a Palestinian. He's Israeli. He has more power than I do, right? And the person with less power cannot concede their dignity and self-respect. So for nothing, right? Don't give it away for free. Um, and so what I think is missing in, in this conversation with him, because it was an hour long conversation, is him taking accountability for his actions, um, him showing not just in words, but in deeds, the willingness to move forward with peace and, and recognize the, the mistakes that were made along the way, right? The injustice that was committed along the way. So all that's part of the package of reconciliation, but every journey starts with a step, right? And I think that was important to have that conversation. Um, and, you know, he's part of the liberal wing of the Israeli government now, which is very different than where he started. Um, and, you know, there's that, that infamous Yitzhak Rabin quote, which is, you don't make peace with your friends, right? Uh, so my hope is that we walk away, people will walk away saying, <clears throat> I've gotten criticized for it, but I hope some people walk away saying, well, if he could do it, then maybe there's hope for the future, you know? Um, and I learned that from my dad, frankly. My dad, he did an NPR interview and he said, you know, he could, he could hate Yehud Barak forever, he said, and I'm entitled to it. He killed my mom and dad. I mean, no human being can't empathize with that statement. And he said, but for, for to continue to live myself and for my kids, I have to set aside my hatred. Because if I continue to hate, my kids will kill and end up being killed. And as a father, I don't want that. That message sounded very similar to what you Brock told me. And he said, one day you and my grandkids will sit down at the table of peace and you won't even be able to explain to yourself why it took this long. And he said, a millimeter beneath our skin, we're all the same. Um, and so there was this recognition of a common humanity. Now, if we could just turn those words into actions um, and lower the, the, the tension between these two people, um, give Palestinians the dignity they need to live in freedom and security and uh, all the things we want as Americans, the same aspiration for freedom and dignity and human rights and, and the freedom of movement um, and upward mobility, give Palestinians that dignity. Um, I think you would begin to see an end to the conflict. So it was an interesting experience. Um, it definitely left me with more questions than, answer, than answers. Um, and I wouldn't call it quite reconciliation, but it was a step, I think, in, um, in the right direction. Thank you for being willing to sort of share your, share your thoughts about that. Yeah. No, thank you for giving me the chance because I, I tweeted about it and that's it. Like it was 140 characters and a lot of people were like, so unpack this for us. Are you saying that you and him are buddies? No, you killed my grandparents. I almost wasn't here because of his actions, but 
this is, I think, the longest I've spoken about it publicly. So anybody who cares about this part of the journey, they tune into this podcast because I've talked about things that I have never talked about before. Steve Carlos, you have a future in this thing, man. You're like overwintering me right now. <laughs> well, actually, it was Angel who asked the question. So, Angel, it was you take the credit for that one. Angel, that's all you. You're the next Oprah. You heard her first. All right, Marvel. We want to be respectful of your time. I know we had you booked until 45. So um, I the way that we wanted to close with you is if you had any sort of um, any parting wisdom for any listeners who may be, you know, young Latinx students, maybe thinking about running for office, um, deciding where to take their careers in this enormous realm in this time that we find ourselves in. Yeah, I would definitely take advantage of the school that you're at, take advantage of, you know, your college experience. One thing I didn't do well enough is get involved in like extracurricular activities on campus, organizations, stuff like that, expanding my network on campus. So if you're still there, take advantage of it, you know, gain mentors, try different things, travel when we can, of course, not now, um, but do travel, see the world, meet with people that you don't agree with, don't be in a bubble. Um, you know, reach out to me. Um, my email is just amarcampa at gmail.com. And don't be afraid to take risks, you know, and recognize the power of your own experiences, right? What you might find mundane or undeserving is usually what makes you a very compelling person, a very compelling, hopefully, leader. Someone told me, you know, it, it's okay to fail. All you have to do is get it right once. Like, it's okay to fail. Don't be so afraid of failing. A lot of the people that we look up to these days failed a lot before they succeeded. So don't let analysis paralysis get in the way of your dreams, of your potential. Um, and just always, you know, stay informed, read, um, and stay open-minded. Don't be vacant-minded and just take anybody's word for whatever, but be open-minded to different experiences. And, and you being a college student, by your nature, you're more open-minded than the average person uh, because you probably had to leave you know your town to go get your education so you're open to new experiences you're more trusting of people by nature um, so i would take that and, and run with it the things that you've learned here stay that way stay open-minded be a sponge um, and never 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 uh, underestimate the power that you wield uh, as an individual to make a change. It's the only thing that's ever changed this world is individuals doing extraordinary things um, because they were compelled to meet the moment. So um, I hope that's some wisdom. Um, and again, I'll leave you with what inspired me. If you don't like the way that the world looks, if you don't like what I have to say, then grab a clipboard, roll up your sleeves, tie up your shoes and, and get to organizing. Make the world look like um, what you want it to be by being involved in it. Absolutely. Amar, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. And thank you so much for, for sharing your wisdom with us. Ah, thank you. Thanks, guys.